right. Welcome, everybody, to our experience, the ASCP podcast. Chad and Tom with you again and doing a segment that we like to call Rage Against the Machine. And today's segment is Long-Term Care Pharmacy at Home. 53 of the 57 million people over the age of 65 do not reside in a nursing home. In 2030, that number will likely be close to 70 million of the 75 million people over the age of 65. Today's admission to a nursing home will not be tomorrow's, and we will need to become better at caring for people where they live, which is predominantly in their home. Long-term care pharmacy knows how to manage the medications for these complex individuals. We need to start doing that now for them. Let's get updated in how we can start providing long-term care pharmacy services at home. And we're very excited to have Catherine Finley of Thorn Run Partners with us today. Catherine, I am wearing a Surf Ohio shirt. Because you have an Ohio, we have an Ohio connection. Catherine graduated from Miami University, as I understand. That's correct. Uh, And I worked for, I interned for former Congressman John Boehner, and I I worked for former Senator Mike DeWine. So awesome. Good connection into Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Catherine, just give us a little background on you, number one, and then talk to us about the work we're doing in long-term care pharmacy at home. Sure, happy to. I hate to say I've been around in Washington, D.C. for quite a while, and I also have had some work at the state level. As I mentioned before, I started out my career working for Senator Mike DeWine, who is now the governor of Ohio. And from there, I went to Texas and worked for Governor Bush and in the state legislature, and then came back and worked for the Southern Governors Association for a number of years before moving back to the Senate and working for Senator Olympia Snow during the creation of the Medicare drug benefit, and then later to Senator Gordon Smith's office, where I eventually ran the aging committee for him uh, as staff director. And obviously, through all of those twists and turns, healthcare was a key component of all the work that I did. And the you know intersection of Medicare and Medicaid and the retirement process and how we don't do a good job in this country on long-term care and, and helping provide the services that people need to be healthy and, uh, and age in place in their home with grace and, and with health has certainly been a challenge and been something that you know Congress and states have been grappling with for many, many years. So I'm excited. I have the opportunity right now to be working directly on this issue through the Alliance for Long-Term Care Pharmacy at Home. And I think, you know, the, our goals of delivering access to a comprehensive, full-service pharmacy benefit for highly acute individuals living in the home is a notable cause. And I think it would ultimately end up helping people, but also saving the government quite a bit of money because we could keep people healthier longer, keeping them in their home and and out of institutions. So we ask this question amongst ourselves all the time, especially amongst different clinicians, but you have a very unique perspective based on, you know, what you've done in your career and what you're doing now. But we think of things in terms of these individuals, the growth in this segment of the population is so profound that I often am wondering if we're absolutely missing the boat or if we're ready at all for dealing with what ultimately will be 50% more people over the age of 65 in probably just over five years from today. What's your perspective on that? I think that's right. There's so many facets when you think about the challenges facing our healthcare system today. And then you look at the rapid increase of people who are going to be entering Medicare and 
seeking services. And, and obviously it is an unfortunate reality, but as we age, we tend to require more healthcare. There are certainly those out there that skate through and, and live to a hundred and, you know, never see a doctor, but the vast majority of people need some level of care. And at the heart of our healthcare system right now are, are pharmaceuticals. And, you know, when you think about it, the average person doesn't understand how medications interact, how perhaps an over-the-counter supplement that they think is helping them could be adversely impacting a prescription medication that they're taking. They may have a family caregiver who's trying to juggle all these things. And the reality is both because of preferences that exist among the individuals who are aging now into Medicare and beyond, as well as just the reality of capacity, the vast, vast majority of individuals are not going to be in a skilled facility. They are going to be at home or in an assisted living environment where they are predominantly trying to juggle these questions and figure these things out on their own or with the help of a lay person who is a family caregiver. And perhaps if they're lucky, they have a particularly helpful community pharmacist um, when they do exist and they do a wonderful job, but that pharmacist can only uh, address what they see. And if somebody is going to two or three different doctors and perhaps getting pharmaceutical prescriptions filled at two or three different pharmacies, that pharmacy isn't necessarily going to have the whole picture and understand everything that's going on. And so, you know, I think that hopefully there will be an acknowledgement. I do think there's an understanding on Capitol Hill and the administration that we need to do more for people living in their home to keep them healthy, keep them safe, keep them out of the emergency room, doctor's offices, and eventually, you know, not in inpatient care in a skilled facility. But we have a lot of education to do. And I think we have a lot of work in being able to play within the parameters of Congress, which is if you want to do something you don't want to spend a lot of money. And often the Congressional Budget Office doesn't do a great job of looking prospectively that if we spend a little money now, we're going to save a lot of money down the road. But it certainly happens. And I think that's, you know, that's going to be our our biggest challenge, but also the biggest reward, because I do believe there are models out there that demonstrate this right now. We just need to be able to get it to scale so that the wide range of people who are living in the community right now with significant health challenges are able to get this, this benefit before they end up in a skilled facility. So as a pharmacist, uh, it's easy to be a little pessimistic. It's easy to sit down and go, well, yeah, I mean, sure, Medicare is, is going to go bankrupt and the mon- there's not going to be money there. And yet, they're going to ask us to do a lot of stuff for free, ask us to deliver for free and take care of these patients free. And I don't even want to go down that road. I'm just going to, you know, do what I know, which is long-term care, nursing homes or whatever it is. But there's so many things that that needs to be done. Where where are you concentrating on? What are the, the, the two, you know, big home runs that you're trying to accomplish over the next year or two that can really kind of help protect and help encourage, I should say, pharmacists into servicing these long-term care at home patients? Well, I think when we look at the numbers, right, we're, we're cresting where half of beneficiaries roughly are in traditional Medicare and half are in Medicare Advantage plans with that MA number growing every year. You know, we always say in the, particularly in the pharmaceutical side of Medicare, 
the Medicare Advantage programs have a vested interest in figuring out how to keep people healthy, keep them out of the emergency room, out of inpatient care, et cetera, because they also have to absorb the cost of those individuals and whatever they spend in part A and B impacts that plan as well. So if you can, they tend to be a little more open to spending some money in the part D space if it's going to save them money in part A and B. I think we have a long way to go in getting all of the plans there. And that's one of the things we've been talking about around how can we work with the administration to make the requirements stronger so that every MA plan has to work with a long-term care pharmacy and create options and, and benefits for beneficiaries in the community. The other side is actually quite difficult because Part D standalone plans that are servicing, again, about half of the Medicare beneficiaries that are in traditional Medicare have no exposure financially in Part A and B. So they can have the cheapest, most restrictive and limited Part D plan that they're allowed to have. And if that triggers Part A and B costs or even Medicaid costs, they have no exposure to that. And so we think the best way, but there are certainly a multitude of options, that the first step in this is to make sure that all plans, whether it's a Part D standalone or an MA integrated plan, are required to contract under network adequacy with a long-term care pharmacy that is able to serve individuals of a certain level of acuity in their home and make sure they really get a comparable set of services that that individual would receive were they in a skilled facility. Right. That gets at the issue of how we get them covered, how do we get those services out there, but certainly your point around making sure that long-term care pharmacies are paid at an adequate rate to make it a market they actually want to participate in is also a secondary challenge. And we are working through that. I think, you know, whenever we talk about paying providers more or putting mandates in to Medicare that set standards, it can get challenging. What I would say right now is we, we need to get to the place where this has to happen that is a part of delivering services, whether you are a standalone plan or an MA plan, you have to do it. And from there, I think there's a bit of market forces because obviously there will be competition. They will have to contract with somebody and therefore long-term care pharmacies have some leverage finally to push rates up to equal what they're spending. And then beyond that, I think we have to see how that plays out to be able to assess what is the next step? What is the appropriate mechanism to look at if, in fact, that that market force doesn't work and long-term care pharmacies aren't getting paid adequately to have enter the market? Obviously, that, that's something we have to figure out once we cross that bridge. But right now, we're really focused on trying to make sure that every plan actually has to participate and have this type of service available to the Medicare beneficiaries living in the community. That makes sense. So, Catherine, just looking back at your history and obviously the political environment today is very different than what it was when the Medicare Part D benefit was passed. What were the things that you look back on and say, this is how we got this done? This is how we got the Part D benefit for Medicare beneficiaries. This is going to inform us. And when we try to get this benefit, these are the things that are going to have to happen. What do you draw on that's relevant and what do you look back on and say, well, those forces are gone and we have to think a new innovative approach. 
Well, I mean, I certainly hope it doesn't take as long as it took to get the Part D benefit, right? That that was about a 15-year journey that, yeah. you know, as the and, and again, I think some of that became the reality of healthcare was changing during that period of time as well. And pharmaceutical treatments were becoming much, much more central to the care that people receive. But again, at, at the end of the day, most things that change in Medicare are driven because Medicare beneficiaries demand it. And when you have a collective voice, as we saw with the creation of the drug benefit, that drives change. And, you know, so it is a a combination, I think, of having the right solution, which we believe we have, the data to back it up, that it is going to benefit beneficiaries as well as the Medicare program in the bigger sense, and then bringing in all of the supporting interests that the seniors groups, the disability groups, all of those individuals who are you know, invested in the Medicare program and understand the value that this would bring to their individuals is what's going to ultimately move the needle. And you know, again, I think we have folks on Capitol Hill who think about these issues around pharmacy, think about how pharmacy can keep people healthy. And, you know, we're starting those conversations. And then certainly I think the administration, this administration and previous administrations have taken steps to open the door to these kinds of services. Um, We would just argue they haven't opened them enough because you're really relying on the good graces of a plan wanting to spend money in this space. And unfortunately, the vast majority aren't right now. And often to get companies to do something new and different, you have to nudge them along. And we think looking at the network adequacy is the best way to do that. Yeah, it's amazing how most of the large PBMs are actually owned by an insurance company. And yet they can't seem to even figure out how to work together to to, to get better outcomes and, and save money. But I do know that we have all been fighting for long-term care definition to define pharmacy, long, what a long-term care pharmacy is. How big of that, that policy that we're trying to get in place, how big of that is that to you that would make that big of a difference? I know it's important to the community. I, I believe what we're doing is not, that is not predicated on having that happen okay. because, you know, we are talking about a set of services and we're talking about eligibility. And so the way, you know, we would look at it is if an entity can meet the services that are necessary to truly deliver a long-term care pharmacy at home benefit, and they're able to serve that population of individual at the level, you know, eventually set by CMS, then that's really the key for us. Certainly not to say that a definition isn't helpful, but I don't think we have to wait for that to happen to go after this policy change. And I would say, I think it's really important that whatever kind of a definition it would be created, that it is forward thinking. It's not based on what the market looks like today, but is able to evolve and really capture what you know new pharmacies might look like or the evolution of existing pharmacies as they are serving people in the community and in their home. Okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. So taking it a different direction, not focusing specifically on long-term care at home for this question, obviously you're an expert, you've done this for a long time. How do you balance expectations from clients? In this case, 
It's long-term care pharmacy. I feel like I look at Jim and Arnie that work in ASCP and they're constantly trying to hold back the entrepreneur that's like, I don't understand why mm-hmm. he's walking and fix this. Like, just fix it. Just do it. Yeah. That's just, I mean, I, that was probably me five years ago before I came here and took this role. I, I knew a little bit more than that, I think. But how do you do, how do you deal with that? <laughs> before Congress beat it out of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reality is it's a lot of education. You are correct. And we were, I work with a lot of people who don't live and work in DC. And even if my direct contact happens to be, you know, head of government relations, they're reporting to people within, you know, the company or the organization that may or may not be headquartered in Washington, DC and may have a very different commercial focus or membership focus that makes what happens in DC a sideshow, recognizing that for most people in the healthcare space, Medicare and Medicaid play a oversized role in both the regulations and the policies that they have to abide by, as well as the payment structures coming in. And then, you know, commercial plans often follow what Medicare decisions are made for coverage, new new pharmaceuticals, new devices, new, you know, new techniques. So it can be challenging. I, I think the approach we try to take is to educate, set a reasonable course, but also caution that, you know, we are not able to, you know, wave a magic wand and have something happen, that it takes a lot of outreach, a lot of education, both on Capitol Hill, often in the administration. And that's, that can take a lot of time. I mean, I got a bill passed once in, in about a year and that was pretty remarkable. It was a very unique situation around a member and, and the loss of a, of a child. Most bills take two years, three years. And, and as I mentioned, the effort around creating the Part D drug benefit was closer to 15. So, you know, big things take a long time to happen in Washington, D.C. for a variety of reasons. Smaller things that you think are no brainers and we should be able to check the box and get it done can often take just as much time. But it, it really is just setting expectations and making sure everybody's involved and making sure that the individuals we're working with who may or may not be in D.C. are a part of those conversations. And, and they're hearing from the decision makers directly so they can hear it and absorb it. And again, it's a, a constant, you know, you have a pathway, you get information, you make an adjustment. You get more information, you make another adjustment. It, it is rare that the path you set out from the start of an initiative is the path you followed to the letter to get to the end game. You're always making adjustments in this town for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that you alluded to and, and brought up really has to do with beneficiary demand. And, and I see that playing out in multiple forms. Number one, we need stories from pharmacies about successes related to services that might occur in one area that don't occur in another area. We need education of families and caregivers that might have a loved one in a nursing facility. And you almost want to get to the point where they're envious of the service that they might see their mom or dad get in the nursing home, but they as a beneficiary also don't have access to. And it creates that sort of, why don't I have access to that? I should get specialized packaging. I should get a pharmacist talking to me about my meds on a periodic basis. And I feel like that's really important. You work with a lot of advocacy groups on the Hill. How much of that is part of this game? Oh, mobilizing the grassroots is critical. At the end of the day, everybody 
in Congress is an elected official and, and the president is an elected official. So, you know, I use the phrase often the squeaky wheel gets oiled when we're able to harness large number of voters calling for the same thing that tends to get, you know, member attention. Now you can get member attention and there might be other hurdles or other barriers that exist, whether that's the cost of something or opposition from a opposing group. But, you know, in our case, I think with regard to enhancing the services that people receive at home under their pharmacy benefit is certainly something where grassroots engagement is critical. And I think it will help you know, turn the dial. And I think it's not just stories from pharmacies or pharmacists. It's, you know, individuals, caregivers, people who are the direct recipient of the benefit being able to say, you know, this is what happened to me or my loved one because we didn't have it can be just as powerful as we were one of the select few who got this benefit and my health status went from here down, you know, and improved to this other level that now I feel like I can stay in the community and live in my home for many years to come. And so those are all important pieces of this messaging as we, you know, start to engage Capitol Hill and the administration. So you sort of just answered my my next question, but our listeners are pharmacists, running pharmacies and working in pharmacies. What advice or what ask do you have of them being able to, to hear what you just said and what can they do to to help protect, obviously, their future and their longevity, but also their community? I mean, I think it's multiple steps. One is, you know, as they are engaging with Capitol Hill, with with their, you know, member of Congress or their senators, making sure they're sharing that story and even raising with them the difference that exists and helping elected officials to understand that there is this population in the community that looks just like the population in a skilled facility, but for perhaps they have a family member or the means to have a caregiver come in every day. But again, that doesn't address or doesn't deliver to them a comparable pharmacy benefit. Mm -hmm. The other side is as they are talking with individuals that they're supporting, are there opportunities to, you know, to provide assistance, whether it's through a, a program that, you know, a demonstration or, or some of these smaller kind of pilot programs, you know, to be able to pull out stories and share those. And then I think it's a matter of, of working together and also working with other senior disability groups in the community that you might coordinate with on other issues to get them aware of this and educate them as to, you know, this is something that we think if if individuals that meet this certain health status had access to, they'd be healthier, they'd be able to stay in the community longer. And so again, it's it's a one-on-one engagement, but then it's also building that coalition and that network both at the local level, as well as the work we're doing at the more national level to build those coalitions. So maybe one last question, Catherine, again, it's more one of more of those global questions. You know, I, I think I used to have the cockeyed optimism that the government will solve the problem at the right time in time for what we might foresee or forecast as a a major impending disaster. Are you optimistic that we're going to we're going to solve the problems to be able to manage the care of 70 plus million people over the age of 65 starting in five years? No, (laughs) but 
<laughs> and with but that, we end. Great. Right. <laughs> I think there are efforts like what we're trying to do with the Alliance that can certainly chip away at it. But, you know, we don't have, even have a long term care benefit in this country. So to think that as people are retiring and starting to utilize long term care services, when there isn't even a system in place that really does that, I, I just don't see that happening in five years for a variety of reasons. But I do think there are things that, you know, incrementalism in Washington, D.C. has always been in vogue. And so, you know, picking away at it and trying to improve different pieces of the challenges is how we at least make some progress and we build toward that. And, And that's where I see, you know, the alliance effort really fitting in. It's an incremental step. But for the individuals who potentially would get this more robust set of services, it can be the difference between living in your home, you know, for 10 years, 15 years longer, healthy, able to be mobile, able to, you know, engage versus having one adverse health event predicated by a pharmaceutical issue. And suddenly you're now in a skilled nursing facility. And we know that for most people, that's not where they want to be. Right. I think that's the perfect sort of summary of the whole issue right there is there's a variety of reasons people don't want to end up in nursing facilities. They don't desire to be there. They're expensive. The government doesn't want you there either because it's expensive. We have to have them. We're we're always going to have them for the most acute and complex patients. So there should be this drive, you know, to get people to accept that, hey, if I do these things at home, yeah, they're a little bit more advanced or they are a little bit more hands-on, but they keep me out of that nursing home. 10, 15 years. It's a win for, for it's a win for it's a win for everybody. But I, I still can't get the pothole fixed on my street, you know. And <laughs> uh, it's been like it's a, a different year. it's been like a year. So I can't imagine the government's gonna move fast enough. But I, I think that as caregivers, pharmacists as caregivers, we have to make ourselves available. We might not make as much for that nursing home patient, but we've got to deliver care. And I think it's our responsibility and Certainly, you know, we have to make make a living and, and, and be a, you know, be a business. So all the things that you're doing to help incentivize and to help get us paid more and, and that kind of stuff, we, we, we really appreciate. But at the end of the day, we're going to be there for the patient and the government needs to support that. And so I appreciate everything that you're doing and, and your team's doing for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got a lot of work to do, but, but there is, you know, optimism that we can make progress on this. Uh, Catherine, are you an Ohioan? Were you born in Ohio? No, I was born in Indiana, grew up in southwestern Michigan. Gotcha. Went to Miami to play volleyball. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that either. Okay, that's great. I didn't end up playing. I ended up not playing and and going into more student government, but it is what allowed me to to end up there. Well, as a lifelong Cincinnatian, and uh, I did not go to Miami. I went to Xavier and to University of Cincinnati, but we are very prideful about our Cincinnati universities, in particular Miami University. So, well, thank you for being on. We appreciate it. And thanks for the work you're doing. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on Our Experience. See you next time.